Welcome to episode 6 of What Would Jeeves Do? Coming to you from New York City. And oh, never forget what a friend you have in me. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome back to What Would Jeeves Do? Season 2. I'm your charismatic host, Nick Jeeves, and oh, please never forget what a friend you have in me. Especially now during these times, these crazy, crazy times. So let's talk quarantine. We here at the show, specifically me, took some time off for a while. Part of that was due to the Kung Flu, the COVID-19. Uh, I actually think I had about, yeah, 15, 16 days in isolation because I think I had the virus. I lost my smell and taste. I was fatigued. I was congested. They laughed at me when I asked to get a test. My fever wasn't high enough. I guess I wasn't at death's door. But it was strange, and it was certainly stressful enough to take a few weeks off from work and uh, a month off from the podcast here. But I'm back, feeling better than ever, and we have a very cool lineup of guests coming your way in the next few months. So buckle up. It only gets crazier from here. And by crazy, I mean informative and fun. But before I jump in and give you the lowdown on Season 2, Episode 1 here, I just want to quickly point out that one of my first Fox News interviews since I came back to work was with Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Church. President Trump recently gave Greg Laurie a shout-out on Twitter for his Easter broadcast of services. Over a million people tuned in, so big congrats to Greg on that one. Please check out our interview. Just type in Greg Laurie and Fox News. It should be the most recent one there. And if you want a really great bonus, go back a couple of months to our podcast episode together. The talk is just between us is so good, and he's got a lot of great knowledge and wisdom to share. So I double back for that one. Now getting to the now, the here and now, this week I sat down with National Director of Priests for Life, Father Frank Pavone. He's been featured on EWTN. He's worked with another friend of the show, Dr. Alveda King. She's the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. Very prominent figure in the pro-life community. My mother, actually, back in the day, took me to a faith conference where I met Father Pavone many years back. I was very young. But funny how life works that way, isn't it? Someone you meet in your past that you never thought you'd come across again, and it comes back in such a powerful way. Uh, That's God, and that's the only way we can really put it. And this, it happened to be one of the smoothest episodes we've ever had. I asked him very simple, honest questions that were on my mind and the mind of a lot of people, and he gave some amazingly detailed, yet very to-the-point answers. Ironically enough, uh, we didn't talk about the pro-life movement the whole time. It was a deep dive into many issues, facing the church and facing the world. And we discussed how to be a good priest, what it means to have the trust of your congregation in matters of faith. We talked about how the priesthood is evolving, schisms within the faith, education, the Pope, a lot of great topics. And he took us on a personal journey about how he became a priest and a very publicly outspoken one at that. And the people he turns to for inspiration and and how he finds God in his everyday life. So before I hand it over to Father Frank Pavone, I'll also say that I did a Fox News article with Father Pavone as well that I would encourage you to check out. In it, he talks about his basically quarantine routine, how he continues his ministry despite this massive shutdown. So go check that out. And But for now, all I ask is that you clear your minds, open your hearts, and listen along to a very positive, hope-filled episode 
with Father Frank Pavone. Get your mind off all the madness of the world. Let's take a listen. So, Father Frank, tell me a little bit about why why the priesthood? Why why did you feel the call to, to join the priesthood? Well, you know, it's interesting because it was a big surprise to my parents. I did not grow up in a, in a particularly uh, strongly religious family. We went to church on Sundays, but really that was about it. And I went to public schools. Uh, so... Um, when when I told uh, uh, my parents in my the beginning of my senior year of high school that I wanted to go into the priesthood, it was quite a quite a novelty uh, for them to hear that. Though they were supportive, the way it, it happened with me was that I um, simply at mass one Sunday began to realize what a privilege it was when I saw the altar boy putting the things together for mass and and putting we were going to have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament that night, so we put the monstrance on the table. And I said, wow, this is, this is really a, a privilege. And, so, and, and during that Mass and, and, and afterwards during the Adoration, I experienced a strong desire to start serving Mass. I had never done that before. And I was wondering if I was, you know, too old to do it or, or what. So the next day I went to the pastor and asked him, and he said, oh, by all means, you can serve Mass. You could even be a lector and do the readings. And, and I started to rediscover the faith, is, is the best way I can explain it. Reading Scripture, praying more each day, going to, I started going to Mass every day as a senior in a public high school. And um, I hadn't yet started thinking about priesthood, but the more I discovered the joy of really practicing the faith, the more I began to think, you know, maybe this is something great that I could do for others to help them rediscover the joy of the faith. And that led me to start uh, thinking of the priesthood and ended up uh, going into the seminary right after school graduation. What was the difference in your life going to church every day versus once a day or, you know, a couple times a week or rather once a week? Yeah, big difference. Really, just a tremendous difference. You know, the, the for Catholics, the, the belief in the uh, in the Eucharist is really the center of everything. I mean, we believe this is truly Jesus among us physically, and you develop a um, a hunger for the Eucharist, and it just brings a tremendous sense of closeness to God uh, above and beyond. I mean, we know that God is present when we gather in our families; He's there. We go to a beautiful. Uh, park or, or seashore, you know, in mountains, he's there. Uh, he's in his word. He's there when we pray. He's in so many ways present to us. But for, for, for the Catholic, this is the, the summit and the center of the, of the life of the, of the Church. So going every day, becoming familiar with more with the Scriptures, through the readings uh, at the Mass, I just experienced a tremendous inner peace a joy, a joy that extended to all the things I was doing, uh, you know, whether going to school or, or doing things at home or the activities with friends. It, it was a joy that began to permeate uh, my life in a, in a way that really made me think, you know, this is, this is real and this is worth spreading to others. So before we get to your pro-life works, I know you have a lot of uh, things that you've done on the side, you know, during your ministry. I want to ask you about the structure of the Catholic priesthood. Do you feel that... Yes. Um, it's easier to be a preacher, uh, to be a apostolic leader, being single, not being able to get married, uh, choosing to devote yourself fully to Christ, or can you be married and, you know, in another faith and, and that's Christianity and preach, or is it just different or is it, is it actually better, do you think, to commit fully? 
Well, this is uh, something that I know, of course, uh, many and work with many pastors who uh, are happily married and carry out their ministry. And, and of course, within the Church, you know, we have um, deacons uh, mm -hmm. who are married, and, and by certain exceptional circumstances, and in other rites, aside from the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, we do have married priests as mm -hmm. well. But I work closely with a lot of these men, and I see how, you know, that works if the spouse is fully involved as well. She should not be considered some, you know, bystander or uh, someone off to the side. Mm -hmm. For it to work uh, for the married men, she has to be fully involved. But I would say, in my uh, own experience, the not being married, it's not like, oh, okay, well, this is one of the requirements of the priesthood, so I have to put that aside. It really is very much the opposite of that. And what I mean is that, as I was describing briefly my, my call to the priesthood, that feeling that I uh, wanted to give myself to Christ, what happens is that it's, it's a spiritual call to love. Many, many people think that, oh, we're going to sacrifice marriage, so you have to sacrifice intimacy, and you have to sacrifice, you know, the joys of being a, being a, uh, a father. Mm -hmm. Well, in a physical sense, yes, that's true, of course. But humanity, our, our humanity requires that we, we have uh, self-giving love, intimate love, and also that we be fruitful, that we actually give life in one way or another. And the beautiful thing about the, 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 the priesthood, uh, living it as someone who's um, dedicated to this completely without marriage and family, is that you really are loving. You're loving the, the, the people that you're serving, you're reaching out to them, nurturing them, protecting them, giving them the word of, of life, you're protecting them in a spiritual way, and you are fruitful. I mean, there's a reason that priests are called father, because mm -hmm. in, in, in when we look at what we do in the faith and in the ministry, we truly are imparting life. Spiritual life is real, faith is real, and uh, what it does for people is real. And so we as fathers need to be imparting that life and then nurturing the spiritual family that God gives us. Um, so it's not it's not a negative, it's a positive, it's a positive dynamic going forward, a different way of loving uh, God's people and of giving life. So you have a very unique you have a very unique ministry from what I'm noticing. You know, you, I do. You, you go out, you speak in public, uh, you, you've, you've been involved with pro-life, priests for life, uh, you've really gone out there and, and done something special. Um, what inspired that? How did it go from being just a, a priest that went to seminary and graduated to um, having such a, a unique ministry? Well, you know, when I first got the desire for the priesthood, as I was describing earlier, at that very same time, I began to awaken to the whole abortion issue and to the pro-life movement. And the way that happened was that in January of 1976, I was uh, in my senior year of high school, and um, the it was it, it was the third anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, which in 1973 the Supreme Court issued to make abortion legal throughout pregnancy in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the March for Life had started in 1974, people coming to D.C. to stand up for the for these little children and to say that they should be protected under the law. I um, joined with my mom and my grandmother on a bus that was leaving from our town to go to Washington 
participate in this annual March for Life. Well, when I got there, it was a bitter cold day, and, and, and it was just unforgettable, but the crowd... It's size, it's energy, it's diversity, people of all ages, of all ethnic backgrounds, of different religions, different political persuasions, all together both somber and deeply concerned about abortion, and at the same time, so much joy, so much peace, so much uh, uh, kindness in that crowd. <clears throat> it was impressive. And, and I, I said to myself that day, this is a big movement, and this is a big issue. I need to be paying more attention to this. From that day in 1976 forward, I just each day learned more, uh, sought to be more involved in this pro-life movement, learned more about abortion, and it was like as the years went on, I, of course then I was pursuing my seminary studies and my vocation to the ministry, but at the very same time, intertwined with that, I, I describe it like uh, an alarm going off in my mind, getting louder and louder about this 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 problem of abortion, and um, as I began doing the ministry, I was very happy, you know, my early years of the priesthood, I was serving in a large parish, but my pro-life activities began to increase more and more and more. And after about four years of serving in this parish work, I experienced what I call a call of conscience, uh, a vocation within a vocation. And I came to the conviction that I wanted to devote myself full-time to protecting the unborn and to ending abortion. Uh, so at that point, I, I went to seek permission to do that, and Cardinal John O'Connor of New York, who had ordained me, and who was very passionate about this issue as well, gave me permission to do exactly that as the first full-time director of Priests for Life. Do you find it... I mean, I've seen you on record. You've, you've said things that are, you know, you're never afraid to stand up for what you believe. I, I admire that. Do you find it troubling, though, that there are some priests, and, and I'll say it too, I'm, I'm personally conservative, and I'm Catholic, I'm Roman Catholic. I find it disturbing a little bit when priests are, you know, very openly pro-choice in a militant sense, or their preaching really seems to diverge from the gospel. It's, it's almost as if it's this anomaly that's come up over the last few decades, where the priesthood, I don't know, it seems like it's in trouble, it needs reinforcements. Am I, am I wrong? Am I, am I feeling that... Uh, that wind blowing. Oh no, you're, you know, you're 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 very accurately observing a, a very big problem, and this is actually one of the reasons for the, the the quick growth and success of Priests for Life, because so many people do feel that they want to see the leadership of their priests on these fundamental issues, and there's nothing more fundamental than the protection of life. I mean, no other right can be enjoyed unless we're alive first, and so people want to see their their priests out there talking about this, leading the charge, not doing their work for them. They want to do their part as lay people as, as they need to, but uh, they want to see the priest uh, leading and, and, uh, and blessing the work. So um, we have, it's funny when people hear about Priests for Life for the first time and they say to me, oh, what is this? Isn't every priest for life? And, you know, over the years, I've, I've answered that by saying, well, yes, but we just help them to say so, you know, because they need encouragement, they need tools, and they need uh, uh, resources to, to, to preach the word clearly. But it's even not even the case to, to say an unqualified yes, because there are some, as you point out. And I think a lot of it is because of, uh, uh, frankly, because of political loyalties. We have a deeper division 
than we've ever had in this country uh, between yes. the two major political parties on this issue, of course, on many issues. Uh, but it never has the divide been more extreme than it is now. And uh, my goodness, people are just so troubled by that. And, and many folks who are Democrats say, hey, the party doesn't represent me when they say, you know, abortion should be allowed without any limits and taxpayers should pay for it. I mean, that's that's for most people. That's way too far. Uh, and so some priests even get uh, get pulled into that. Priests are human. That priests make mistakes. Priests can mm-hmm. let their you know certain loyalties uh, uh, overshadow what should be their primary loyalty, which is proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ as it is taught by the church. Well, I, agree. I always I always felt as a Catholic that the homily was the chance for our priests, as you said, to, to kind of stand up for the faith and invigorate us and pump us up and. When I would, um, especially these days, I see that the faith is under attack. Um, it's biblical. We were told to be prepared to be persecuted. But uh, it seems like it's really ramped up. I turn on a movie. I look at a magazine. I sit down in a youth group. A lot of hatred against Christianity, Catholicism. Um, and your, your words there reminded me of a story. We had a priest. I'll leave his name out of it uh, just in case. But he preached back during one of the elections about voting with your conscience and he talked about the pro-life issue, but he said it calmly, you know, did it very professionally. A woman got up and started screaming at him and took about yeah. five or six people out the door with her and everybody that was left over clapped for him. And I don't understand why there's such fear to stand up and, and say what we believe is true. And um, I don't know, how, how did we get here? How did, how did it happen? You know, when did it start becoming subversive and, and all of a sudden – our own people, our own faith leaders were were being, you know, hateful of of our yes, faith. Yes. I don't know how that happens. You know, it's um, there has been a, a, a lot of bad seminary training that uh, you know, John Paul Pope, the papacy of John Paul II really helps to restore some um, uh, some some solid teaching where there some of these seminaries and some other trends within the, the church had really gone off the tracks and there was a somewhat of a restoration under John Paul II which uh, uh, is not something that happens all at once but I, I think a lot of priests really are suffering from really having been um, deprived of, of some really solid teaching. I mm-hmm. myself went to some excellent seminaries, had some really good solid training, but you know one can never uh, uh, underestimate the the impact that that has. Number one on on priests, and of course with the uh, uh, the um, increased secularization, uh, even militant uh, atheism that we see uh, arising in our day. I mean, priests have to be. Well, I, I remember one um, seminary professor in my college seminary years saying to us, you know, the priests of the, the coming uh, 21st century are going to have to be men of extraordinary holiness. And, and that, that one time, that one comment stuck with me all these years because he was, he was saying, you know, the conflict gets more intense as time goes on. And it is biblical. It, 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 it's something the Lord said would happen. And that many, even who were already uh, strong in the faith, would in fact grow weak and fall away. Uh, I think we're right in the midst of that right now. And uh, it is possible for any one of us to always remain faithful, no matter how intense it gets. And and that's um, using the methods and the, and the means 
that the Lord has given us, uh, prayer, the sacraments, and fellowship with one another, really depends a lot on who we're associating with, and if we can encourage each other in the faith, uh, that's going to help us all to stay uh, on the right track. You mentioned education, and I went to a, a Jesuit college, and I went there expecting to be able to discuss my faith and to be around people of a like mind, at least to some extent. And I was shocked and surprised that not only, as you say, in the seminaries it's happening, but I signed up in my first semester at four out of five classes. I had four Jewish atheist professors and I was kind of surprised and I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll see how it goes. And the numbers definitely shifted as I, I stayed in college and they weren't bad people, by the way, that some of them were good, great professors, but it was surprising to, to have that served up as the only, the only options. And, um, you know, yeah. knowing that when the Jesuits, knowing that kind of culture of they're they're usually very liberal and they're they were very radical. And when Francis got elected, I was concerned immediately. I was like, oh well, if he's like the Jesuits I'm learning from, well, I don't I don't know how much I'm going to line up with with our Pope. Um, do right. you think Do you think there's more to him than we understand? Maybe because of a lot of subtleties or nuances, or is he is his involvement in the politics? necessary? Do you think he's, he's trying to lead and, and do a good job? Uh, do you have any thoughts on his, his leadership as of as of now? You know, uh, the word the word that comes to my mind, uh, and it's on the lips of many people, including priests uh, and even bishops, is simply, it's confusing. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I You know, the Pope does certain things, says certain things. Of course, you know, listen to everything that he's saying. He's reaffirming the faith. He's saying a lot of great stuff, including on the issue I deal with all the time on abortion. He said some very strong things, uh, and he always says, "Look, I'm a son of the church," and uh, you know, he is the he is the pope. Um, but I say to people this, you know, and I say it to myself, you know, if he says something that is just generating a whole lot of confusion or something that doesn't seem to, you know into the faith that we grew up learning. And I say this to people, whether it's the Pope saying it, or their bishop, or their parish priest, yes. I say to them, listen, if somebody says something, doesn't seem to be in line with the faith, go to them with a humble attitude and say, gee, Father, uh, uh, I... I you know, I don't know if I heard you the right way, but I thought you said this, and could you tell me where that comes from? Is there a chapter in the Bible or the Catechism that I should read more about that, or was there a document sent out by the Church? And what happens is, by that humble way of asking the question, you're also putting them on notice about something that they themselves should be well aware of. That is, when we get up into the pulpit, we are not there to express our own opinions about anything. We are there because we were ordained, we were commissioned to teach the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's why we're there. If it were just, uh, uh, you know, oh, let's all share our ideas about today's readings or our ideas about, you know, life in general— well, you know what we should be doing? We should be rotating. Let, let any all the different people in the congregation that want to speak get up on different Sundays, and, because they could give some wonderful talks, no doubt about it. Yeah. It's very, very, you know, so, but that's not what the sermon is. It's, it's, it's you're ordained to proclaim not your own word, but the word of God and the teaching of the Church. That's why even the Pope, his title is the Vicar of Christ, Vicar is referential to somebody else, so it's not about him, 
And what I always say to people, therefore, is it's okay to be confused about something that the Pope says, but there's never any need to be confused about what the faith says. Because what the faith says doesn't come from the Pope. The faith is handed on. It's what the Church has always taught from the beginning. And the beautiful thing about Christianity itself and, and, and Catholicism is that it's nothing secret. You know, there are some religions that have come along over the centuries where, you know, you, you kind of advance up through the ranks and, you know, you get some secret kind of knowledge eventually that only the top leaders in the Church have. And, you know, but the fact of the matter is the Pope doesn't have any more books of the Bible than you and I have. He doesn't have any more chapters of the Catechism than you and I have. The Church is open, clear, the faith is, is, is revealed, it's open for everybody, and so therefore, you know, we kind of kind of keep an eye on each other and say, listen, we are all accountable to this faith. It's not about us. And even, interestingly, even Jesus said the same thing about himself. He said, my teaching is not my own. It came from the Father who sent me. So if the Son of God says that, we ought to be very well saying it ourselves. And those are those are my favorite priests in college. Like I said, even if they were, I disagreed with them on beliefs, what have you. If I sat down in church and felt moved just the same, I knew they were doing their jobs because yes. they were focusing on something, things we can all agree on. And, exactly, uh, exactly. I, I've right. gone over this a little bit in some of my other episodes. I've had some, uh, you know, health issues that have caused me to, at an early age, have to think about life and, and mortality. And I've learned a few things that transcend right and left. And I know that when I hear them from the pulpit, that it's, um, mm. it's, it's true. And it's hard to, it's hard to see, like you said, such division continue. How, how do we repair this damage? Even in our own faith, forget the country for a minute. The faith is divided. How right, do we reunite? Right. It's a sad thing. You know, uh, and, and, and when it comes to division, of course, we shouldn't be surprised our, our Lord said there would be division. Um, what we have to be concerned, first of all, about uh, is not so much that there is division, whether in our families, our communities, our nation, or our church, but that we're on the right side of the division. That's the first thing we have to make sure that we're getting clear and straight. And then secondly, you know, building, there's a lot of different ways to build bridges, to, to, to dialogue, to show people that even if you're disagreeing with them, you have goodwill towards them. I, in my own pro-life work, have established lines of dialogue with some of the most um, uh, prominent pro-abortion uh, advocates and leaders over the years. And uh, in fact, it was my privilege to bring the, the Jane Roe herself of Roe versus Wade into the Catholic Church. Back This was back in 1998, Norma McCorvey. Mm -hmm. I, I've established a lot of bridges like that. Um, and, and, uh, and yet in the midst of that, you know, you, you, you always have the attitude that, look, first of all, I, I'm at peace because I know that that, that I'm uh, striving always to be on the right side of the division. I'm not going to water down any anything about the truth in order to please somebody else. Uh, and then at the same time, look, these people have their own responsibility and their own freedom. And if they choose to uh, go off the track in some way, it's not going to... Uh, to disturb my own uh, my own peace of mind. So people have to go into it with that attitude and, and at the same time indicating to others, listen, the door is always open. Some people disagree with us and create division just because they, they want to create division and they have ill will and then they're not interested in the truth. Those who are interested in the truth and maybe just they have some wrong ideas or, or you know, and they want a dialogue, that can be very fruitful. Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> In, in the divisions, speaking to that, I have a couple more for you before we wrap up here. The 
The division, one of the biggest, as people say, is between the haves and the have-nots. That's a narrative that runs through politics, religion. Can can a man, or for that fact, a woman of God, can they be wealthy financially and still serve God? A lot of narratives, a lot of people say the two are impossible. They always cite the camel going through the eye of the needle. What are your thoughts on, on material wealth when it comes to faith? Yeah, you know, the Church has always understood uh, our Lord's teachings on poverty to mean, first of all, that we do that we realize that nothing we possess, nothing we can possess, can bring us peace and happiness. Or we rest in God alone, and that's what Jesus means by being poor in spirit. We rest in God alone. One of the ways, uh, certainly, of understanding that we find our peace, fulfillment, and happiness in God alone, and not in any material possessions, privileges, positions, or power, or popularity, is, in fact, to divest ourselves as much as we can of of possessions. Some people, therefore, you know, take on radical poverty. This is one of the purposes of the religious orders in the Church. They actually take a vow of poverty. Why? To remind the rest of us that, you know, you don't take any of this with you to the grave, and don't look for happiness in any of these passages. Things so it's first and foremost a spiritual attitude. It's it's a it's an attitude of detachment, uh, as the church calls it, and a readiness to to be able obviously to share with the less fortunate. That is that's a command. That's a necessity that we that we be attentive to the poor. Now, having said all that. There's nothing in the in the church's teaching or or in the gospels that says being wealthy in and of itself is wrong. It's not. It's just that we have to be aware that, that it creates more temptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more we have, Jesus said, where your possessions are, there's your heart also. So so it's, it, it, there's a greater temptation. We have to be very vigilant. We have to be maintain an attitude of generosity. But the wealth in and of itself is not, is not wrong, is not evil. In fact, some of the wealthiest people are also some of the most generous. Yeah. And uh, we have great, great people within the Church that are helping uh, in, in just countless ways because they know what's most important in life. They have wealth, and then they use it for the service of God, and that's the, that's the key distinction to keep in mind. So i got two more for you here before we close. How do you personally, yeah. when, you, when you want to talk to God or when you want to reflect upon a problem or a, a, something that comes along in your life, how do you pray? Well, first of all, in the most in the most ordinary and natural way uh, uh, possible, I, I simply talk to him. I, I talk to him either quietly uh, in my mind or 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 out loud. Or sometimes I find that I mean I know that the the Lord knows what's on the inside of all of us, and so. I may just sit there or walk or 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 kneel or lie down and and just let the the desire of my heart or the concern I might have at that moment or whatever it might be just be turned to God without even any words on my lips or even in my mind just that that just sometimes it's just that question of a of a bare presence uh, just and sometimes of course we we don't feel like we're able to pray. We all go through these situations where I don't feel, I don't know, I can't, I'm confused, I can't formulate the words, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to pray, and um, and that's okay. We, we That very desire to pray in a situation like that is itself bringing us into union with God, and sometimes we just have to sit there and, and say, you know, Lord, I can't do anything right now. Just be with me, I want to be with you. And, 
and I, I, I love the pray, praying with scripture. Uh, of course, we as priests have the uh, the liturgy of the hours. Many many lay people say that as well, uh, and uh, various other devotions. The church gives us the rosary and the, of course the mass right in the center of things. Uh, all of these things are are part of my uh, my prayer routine. Nice. All right. So before I um, and stick around after we sign off, I want to want to grab you for a minute or two after we're done. But um, yeah, I want to give you the last uh, opportunity to add anything we missed. But before that. What do you read other than the the Bible when you want inspiration, when you're seeking answers? Do you have any particular author or particular medium that you go to um, when you're not reading scripture? You know, over the years, uh, actually, one of my key mentors was Father Benedict Groeschel. Uh, 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 really? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, he, he, you know, he vested me at my ordination. I, 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 I got to know him when I was a teenager because uh, I grew up. I grew up in Port Chester, New York, so his office was just down the street in um, in Larchmont, and uh, got to know him. Uh, he was one of my seminary professors. He vested me at ordination. He was a mentor all through the years, and he was a prolific author himself. I, uh, I, I learned a lot and read a lot of of what he uh, what he wrote. In my pro-life work, in the development of my mission, uh, I am um, privileged to work on our Priest for Life team with Alvita King, I know the her niece too. of Martin Luther King Jr. You know Alvita, she's right? She's a friend of mine. She's, she's on Fox a lot. Ah, yes. Well, her uncle's writings, I mean, Martin's writings are just profuse. And that has been, and I go back constantly to, to, to that, uh, a, a great source of inspiration for me. Uh, in in developing my ministry, really, in developing the, the strategies that we use to end abortion, and because it really is, when you come down to it, it's the same message. You know, he was not just talking about the dignity of the black man; he was talking about the dignity of every human life. It just so happened that at his time, it, 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 the human life was being attacked in the most egregious way through segregation. But his message applies to the pro life movement just as much, and that's where, of course, Alvita comes into this uh, to this work. So. Um, those are some of the sources. Nice. Well, I, I, I want to give you this last question, but I want to ask part of it and then let you take it from there. But what, what can you, that we haven't covered in this episode, what can you tell young people today that need guidance, that are lost, that are overwhelmed by just everything, the 24-7 nature of, of the entertainment, of media, of, of internet, faith, job? What, what do you say to them? You know, the first thing I would say to them is that, you know, have confidence that you actually know better than what you, than you may think you know, uh, the path you have to take. Uh, be honest with yourself and don't let anybody else dictate to you who you are. Uh, you have a unique vocation, uh, from God. You have a unique contribution that you're called to make in this world and follow it. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. You know, a lot of people in our lives can, can give us a lot of input, and a lot of people can lead us in the wrong way. Be true to what you believe your calling is and pursue it vigorously. You'll find plenty of people to support you. Well, let's put it this way. You'll find enough 
people to support you, to get through uh, what you are meant to be and to and to carry it out well. It may not be sometimes as many as you would like there to be. There will, however, be enough. And um, uh, you know, take take that take that road of, of of just sincerity, transparency, and don't let anybody. You know, as sometimes uh, you know, we we have a vision. Um, we, we we feel we want to accomplish a goal. And then as we go along in life, you know, somebody older comes along and they put their arm around us and they and they say, oh, well, you know, young young man, young lady, you know, you're very idealistic and this sounds very nice, but let me teach you some things, you know, about life, you know, and there's really, and they, they try to tamper your enthusiasm. And then they try to make everything, you know, uh, politically correct. And you mm-hmm. feel like you're walking on eggshells and you can't do this and you shouldn't say that and this is out of place and that's not right and this can't be done and that shouldn't be done, you have to dismiss all of that and say, look, you, yeah, you listen to people with experience, you take their advice if it seems helpful, but really be true to yourself and, uh, and, 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 and you'll find happiness in that. Just when you know you're sincere on the inside, then what's attacking you from the outside is not going to make you lose your, either your peace or your focus. It's Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priest for Life. Thank you so much for joining us, giving us some of your counsel and your wisdom in a very uh, difficult, confusing time, and we appreciate it. We know you're busy, so thank you for, for coming on and sharing. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. When I listen to Father Pavone, what I hear is the power of belief. I feel a resurgence of faith, and the message of that faith is to be strong strong enough to let go. Now, does that mean shut down, have no negative emotions, be a plank of wood? No. We're human. That's going to happen. I've shared with all of you some of my own personal health struggles, and I shared at the beginning of this episode my COVID isolation period where I'm convinced I had the virus. I had moments when I would imagine the worst and I would get scared. It's hard not to. But what I didn't do is I didn't let it consume me. I didn't let it hover over my decision-making. I quickly pivoted. And when I did, a sense of calm resignation came over me because I said to myself, if this is it, this is really God's will and this is the end of my journey, the closing of that circle, then that's it. I have no further say in it. Why worry twice? Why worry And then if it doesn't happen, you've worried for no reason. And then why worry and then have to worry again when the hammer falls? And I've been lucky to be here as long as I have. All the glory goes to God. And that's a message I think Father Pavone shared with us very honestly and beautifully. The only thing I'll say before I wrap this episode up is we can differ on matters of faith, procedure, politics, life. We're different people. No two of us are exactly alike. Division is expected. But now, when you look out your window on lockdown, when you go to the store for hours only to be able to get certain items, when you look at those who have already fallen ill, who have died, the hospital workers out there on the front lines, do those differences really even matter anymore? When one of us feels pain like this, With this virus, all of us feel it, because it could be any one of us. There, but for the grace of God, go I. It is not a cliche. 
it is truer now, maybe more than it's ever been. Remember that with this virus, a lot can go wrong, but the worst case scenario for most is death. And it's an awful end, especially if you're young, to be cut down before your time or when you're in your prime. Awful. It's tragic, plain and simple. You can't really take it any other way. However, death is not the end, my friends. No, death is not the end. I wrote an essay on mortality that I think I'll share more of later in the season, but for now, I'll just say that there is so much going on beyond the veil, as I like to call it, than we can perceive and see with our human eyes. You feel that presence in church. You feel it when the hair on your neck stands up after a piece of music that's moved you. When you teach your baby to talk, when when you're met with unconditional love, even if you think you don't deserve it. When someone offers up themselves self-sacrifice, acceptance, the beauty of nature, all of these things stem from the divine. There is an everlasting and transcendent quality to these things. If we can come together and find common ground within the divinity of life, as well as the suffering that we're all going through together now, then perhaps we can be the first people, maybe in existence, to come close to seeing a fully unified world. But to achieve that, we'd have to be patient, have faith, let go, and love with every fiber of our being. And don't be afraid. Have no fear. This isn't our end. In truth, we've only just begun. I want to thank Father Pavone once again, remind you that episode two of season two is coming down the pipe in the next week or two, and we're going to have former SNL alum turned radio host Joe Piscopo. Hopefully he'll make us laugh and forget about these stressful times for a while until we can get back in gear. So stick with us, keep the faith, and never forget to ask yourselves, what would Jesus do? Jesus do?